Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. If you have your Bibles, please take them out and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to be reading verses 18 through 23 this morning. And uh, while you're turning that way, uh, I'd certainly appreciate the sentiment and the thanks. I do. I, I, I appreciate it very much. And I never doubt it. I never doubt it for a second. Um, but I, but I have to tell you that the, the Lord has not only rewarded me with a loving congregation, He has rewarded me with a joy to come up here and preach. I just I want you to know, like, um, beginning Friday, I find myself not, like, like, being, like, thinking to myself, I cannot wait until Sunday morning. I cannot wait to be able to get in the pulpit. Even when we sing, I'm, I'm, in, I'm crying right along with everyone else. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I just cannot wait to get up here and proclaim the Word of God. I mean, it just, it is something that, that the Lord has given me in the way of worship to Him and a joy that comes from that. And so, um, so let's come before the Lord and pray that He would bless the reading and the preaching of His Word and not let the preacher's enthusiasm get in the way. So, <laughs> Lord God, I am a feeble and broken man. Day to day, I remember who I am. I look in your law and I see even now that I've changed so much since the beginning, but I still see in me, Lord. Um, I see so many things that still need to be different. But I understand my relationship with you, Lord, is not on the basis of what I can do for you, but what Christ has already done for me. And that is the thing that I hold on to every single day. And I understand that I'm here because this is where you've called me to be. Not because I'm smart, not because I am convincing, not because I'm a good speaker, not because of anything else, but because of you and your grace. And so, Father, I plead, Lord, that this morning, that as we go through the text, that you would, that you would cover over my shortcomings and that you would speak truth and life into your people that your word would have its effect in their lives, that your word would be, would be powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, that it would divide us, Lord, and help us to see ourselves for who we are, Lord, and that it would also bind us up and heal our hearts, knowing, Lord God, that our hope rests in you. And so I pray, Lord God, that we would not rise above the text, but submit ourselves to it, Lord, and that we would be shaped by it and not try to shape it in our own image. And so I pray that as we read and and preach your word, Lord, that you would be glorified and pleased in what we do. We give you the praise, honor, and the glory, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 18, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. The late Jerry Bridges, speaking on the wrath of God, wrote this. He says, when we must not lose sight of the fact that God's wrath is very real and very justified. We have all sinned incessantly against a holy, righteous God. We have rebelled willfully against His commands, defied His moral law, and acted in total defiance of His known will for us. Because of these actions, we were justly objects of His wrath. So, I want to welcome you back to our series on the book of Romans. Perhaps it might hopefully not be titled The Ever Never-Ending Story, but we'll see. <laughs> but it, this, this, uh, this series is, is, is titled The Power of the Gospel because that's what this letter of the Romans to the Romans is about. It's about the gospel. And if you remember, Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church for three basic reasons. He wrote it, number one, because he wanted to build relationships with these people he did not know in the hopes that he could establish a base of operations in Rome so that he can go further west with the gospel. He wanted to go further west into Europe. Number two, he wanted to ease the tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles because there was some political and cultural trouble at the time. There was the, the church had begun as a Jewish church, but then because the Jews were kicked out of Rome, it became a Gentile church, and then the Jews came back, and there was just still this tension between these two cultures, and they were trying to navigate how that looked, and Paul was trying to help them. But number three, most importantly, he wanted to clearly explain the gospel to the Christians in that city of Rome. They were started. It was a church that was began um, without the help of an apostle. They were simply people who were in Pentecost and heard the gospel being preached and became converted and went back and started a church. And so Paul was trying to make sure that they understand the gospel, and he says in the opening to, uh, of the letter to them that he is eager that he is excited to preach the gospel to them. But then he says something really perplexing, as we talked about last time. He says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, which really seems strange to us, because why does he say that he's not ashamed of the gospel? Why not just say, I'm proud of the gospel. I'm, I love the gospel. Why would he say that I'm, ashamed, I'm not ashamed? Well, the reason, as we discovered last week, is because there is great temptation in the world around us to be ashamed of the gospel. There's a lot of pressure on Christians to deny the gospel because the gospel, as the Bible makes clear, is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is folly to them. The gospel is offensive to those who are not in Christ. And so there is a lot of temptation to, to become ashamed or at least embarrassed a little bit about the message of the gospel. And because the world labels it foolishness, and because the world pushes back and says the gospel is offensive, many people, many Christians find their resolve to stand up for the gospel as presented in the Word of God weakened. They find their strength to be bold and proclaim the truth failing. And we see it all the time around 
us. People who say that they love Jesus, people who say that they love the Bible, people who say they want to be used by God, people who say they want to be faithful, find the boldness to proclaim the truth of God fleeting. Because when push comes to shove, the world makes them ashamed of the gospel. Now, they won't say, well, I'm ashamed of the gospel. Right? In fact, they would profess, they would even say, right, that they love the gospel. But listen to the message that they will present, that it is a soft, friendly message that lacks conviction, that lacks confrontation. There is no talk of hell. There is no talk of sin. There is no talk of God's holiness or justice. There is no talk of a need for repentance. And watch them squirm. And become uncomfortable when someone does preach the truth of the gospel as revealed in the scriptures. Watch them squirm with the gospel when it confronts and convicts. Watch them struggle when when the call to repent goes out. You will see them push back. You will see them become frustrated. And they will even say, the the, the message that you're preaching is just, just too harsh. The message, that message is going to turn people off. I've heard those exact words. It bothers them. It bothers them that the actual gospel message is laid out in the scripture doesn't sit well with the people that they know and love. It bothers them that it hurts people's feelings, that, 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 that the gospel upsets people, that the gospel offends people. They forget the Bible says that the message of the gospel is offensive in foolishness to those that are not, not saved. And so they blame the preacher for being too harsh rather than blaming sinners for having hearts of stone. Now hear me. I want you to hear me, please. Because sometimes people hear one thing and then they want to hear the extreme of what I'm saying and not hear the balance of what I'm saying. We as Christians ought not to seek to intentionally hurt people's feelings. Right? That shouldn't be something that we seek to do. Because there's nothing noble. I want want you to hear me. There's nothing noble about being a jerk. There's nothing. Nobody likes a jerk, not even Christians. Even if you speak the truth, there's nothing noble about being a jerk. There are people who feel vindicated for being harsh and short and treating people poorly because they're speaking the truth. They feel like, you know, they can get away with that. They feel like they're empowered to do that because they're speaking the truth, that they can be mean. But this is not the Christian way. We ought to seek not to intentionally hurt people's feelings. We ought to seek not to intentionally offend people. And we certainly should not experience joy or a sense of accomplishment when people get upset and reject the message of the gospel. In fact, we should mourn every time somebody rejects the gospel. We should seek to be as gracious and as loving and as compassionate as is humanly possible for those who have been saved and are being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We ought to live in such a way that the light of Christ himself shines through us. We ought to live in such a way that people want to be near us, even if they don't agree with us. Even if they don't believe the same way we do. Asif encounters Muslims all the time, but the light that shines in that man's eyes for Christ makes him irresistible to them. They want to be his friend. 
We ought to be like that. But we also must fully and completely explain and express the truth of the life-saving gospel in Jesus Christ. And we must expect that when we do that, no matter how loving we are, and no matter how much we, we care for other people, and no matter how tender our words are, the gospel will still offend some people. And they will say, you are being ingracious and unloving. And they will say that they don't like hearing that kind of a message. And there will be people who call themselves Christians who will agree with them. That they will agree that you, and they will say that, you, that you're being ungracious. And they will agree and say that that message is just too harsh for them. And they will do so not because deep down, right, they will do so because deep down, it's not that they understand these people better than us. They do so deep down because they are, whether they like to admit it or not, they are ashamed of the gospel. That's the issue. Because they're ashamed of the gospel. In fact, we're, we're going to see in this text three things about the gospel that offends people. Three truths that cause some Christians people who, who, who say they believe in Christ to be ashamed of the gospel. And I want you to know my intention was to get all three of them in, and it's not going to happen today, <laughs> just so you know. And so we will do so by be, beginning to look at Romans 18 through 23. And I say begin because there's just a lot to unpack in this text. And the fact, the truth is, is it'll probably take maybe three, four, maybe even five weeks to get through this text. I just want you to know, my intention was to do this all in one sitting, and I just go, they will put up with me to go an hour, but they won't let me go two hours. So there, the text, Paul here, he begins to explain the gospel. And it's important when we take our time to unpack this, and the reason for that is simple. This text is where Paul begins to explain the gospel, and what he says in this text is critical for how we understand the gospel as a whole. And so understand, today's treatment is just the very beginning of what we're going to talk about, not all that we're going to talk about, not to mention, right, um, I have a tendency to go long anyway. So, so today's message is really kind of like the tip of the iceberg. So just realize this is like, like part one of a mini-series within the series. And so today's message is, is really one little piece all we're really going to talk about today is one of the truths that Paul makes clear that many people, including some who call themselves Christians, find offensive. So turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to begin with verse 18. And before we jump in here, I just want us to think about the context, because as we talked about, context is important. Romans is the clearest exposition of the gospel in the entire Bible. The gospels themselves explain what Christ has done. No clear, I mean, it, I mean, there's no doubt about that. It's clear, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are indispensable for understanding of who Christ is and what Christ accomplished. But this letter is what we, is how we understand how the gospel plays out in the world around us. It explains to us the, the purpose of the gospel. It explains to us the hope of the gospel. And Paul begins his, he, be, Paul begins in this verse, what he's going to do is he's going to begin unpacking for us and explain for us in detail what the gospel actually is. 
And I want you to know that this explanation is not going to come in one verse. It's going to begin in verse 18, and this explanation won't end until chapter 4, verse 25. So understand that Paul is going to begin to explain what the gospel is, the heart of the gospel, in chapter 1, verse 18, and he will complete his explanation in chapter 4, verse 25. So there's a lot to that, right? But then in chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 39, Paul's going to explain the hope of the gospel. And then in chapter 9, verses 1, all the way through eleven thirty-six, Paul's going to defend the gospel. He's going to answer the questions that people pose about the gospel. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, through fifteen three, Paul's going to talk about the transforming power of the gospel. So he's going to begin with the heart of the gospel. He's going to talk about the hope of the gospel. He will give a defense of the gospel. And then he will talk about how we live in light of the transforming power of the gospel. That, by the way, is the overarching point of the letter. Or the overarching outline. If you want to outline the, the, the letter to the Romans, that's pretty much it. Now you have... You've written that down. I would, would certainly encourage you to hold on to that because it'd probably be good to refer back to that. It helps me to come back to that to remember where I am in, in his letter. But notice that, that, that what the central theme is, the common theme in every one of those sections, it is the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the hope of the gospel. It's the defense of the gospel and the transforming power of the gospel. And with that then today, the major section that we're going to begin today is where Paul begins to explain what the gospel is. And again, that's from verse 18 all the way through chapter 4, verse 25. But also this section, I want you to understand, further breaks down into two smaller sections. In fact, this section is broken down into two major parts. You have verses 118 through 330, where Paul talks about the reign of sin in the world, or the bad news that all human beings are under the penalty and the power of sin. And then in verses, in verse 321 through 425, this is where Paul's going to talk about how believers are justified by faith in Christ or the good news that those who believe the gospel are saved, not by what they do, but by faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. So that's the, that's the, the breakdown there, right? And the glaring truth that I hope that you would see that by breaking this outlined down is that the gospel, the gospel is made up of two equally important parts. The gospel is revealed and explained in two basic movements. And these movements are the bad news and then the good news. And what we need to see and understand is that there is no good news without the bad news. Just let that kind of sink into your heart for a moment. I want you to take that truth and make it a part of who you are as a Christian. That in order for the good news of the gospel to be good news, there must be some sort of bad news that the good news solves. Otherwise, there's no need for the good news, by the way. Because without the bad news, Jesus died for nothing. Did you realize that? His suffering on the cross is in vain if there was no bad news that that suffering alleviated. Without the bad news, Christ's forgiveness is meaningless to us. 
Like, so what? Without the bad news, Christ's righteousness that he earned is just superfluous. Without the bad news, the incarnation of Christ is just a puppet show to entertain men. And so the, the good news of the gospel, and so the good news of the gospel is not good news without the bad news, which means the bad news is essential to the good news. And what that means is the details of the bad news is essential for us to know and to understand and believe and to embrace and to not be ashamed of in order for us to grasp the good news. And that, by the way, is, that, by the way, is why when, when Paul begins his gospel, notice that he starts with the bad news. Notice when he talks about not being ashamed of the gospel and says it's the power of God for salvation, that he doesn't start with, and Jesus loves you so much. That's not where he starts. He doesn't start with, God has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't start with, if you'll accept Jesus into your life, you will have peace. He doesn't start with, following Christ will give your life meaning and purpose. He doesn't start with, Christ can heal the wounds of your broken life. Which, by the way, is all true. It is true. Christ can do certainly all that, but He doesn't start with the benefits of the good news, and He doesn't start with the good news itself. He starts where you must start if you're going to even accept the good news. And that is the bad news. With the diagnosis of what the real problem is. In fact, I once talked to our youth group and I was trying to help them kind of see this point. And I asked them, I said, if somebody walked in this room right now and said, hey, you're going to die in a moment. You need to take this pill to live. Would you take it? And they said, no. I said, okay. So you went to the doctor, and after doing some tests, the doctor walks in the room and says, you need to take a pill right now. This pill right now. You're dying as we speak. If you want to live, you need to take this pill. Would you take it? He said, yes. Why? What's the difference? And they said, well, because we know what the diagnosis is. We know what the problem is. The light bulb goes on for them, and they suddenly see the, the need for the, the bad news. You see, nobody comes, nobody will accept the medicine unless they understand the diagnosis. People don't take chemotherapy just because it's going to make them feel better. In fact, you typically feel worse. Nobody accepts solutions to problems unless you know what the problem is. Right? It's the same with the gospel. Nobody will come to Christ for salvation unless they understand they need to be saved and what it is they need to be saved from. That's why Paul starts with the bad news. You must accept the bad news in order to accept the good news. And notice Paul begins to explain the bad news with a truth about God that people, including some Christians, find deeply offensive. Look with me at verse 18. Paul writes this. He says, For, or because, for the wrath of God, not the love of God, not the grace of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. One of the things that I know about the Word of God is that nothing is written in the Bible by accident. I believe we affirm here at First Baptist Church that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient, and that it is theonostos, or the very breath of God. 
Nothing is written in the Bible by accident, and nothing is written the way that it is written by accident. The Bible is written exactly the way God wants it to be written, and it communicates exactly what God wants it to communicate. And that, with that understanding, it is our responsibility to read it and to accept it as it is. Regardless of how we might feel about what it's saying. Regardless of what grandma says to you when you were five years old. Regardless of what culture thinks about it, we must accept it for what it is. We are to read the text in its context and let the text shape us. Rather than us trying to take our feelings and shape the text. We are to be shaped by what the word says, not the other way around. And what Paul, and what we need to see in this text is Paul begins the gospel with a truth that offends the world. A truth that offends atheists, a truth that offends religious people. It even offends many people who claim to be Christians. But here it is. You can't overlook it. Paul begins this section with the word for, which as we talked about is a conjunction, right? It is a word that connects things together, which means what follows the conjunction does not stand alone by itself. It must be read in connection with what was written before. And what was it that was written before? Well, there was actually quite a little bit. Because what we'll see when we go back and look at the text is that there are a lot of conjunctions stringing a lot of ideas together. In verse 17, we see the conjunction for. So we need to go back a little bit further. In verse 16, we see the, the conjunction for. Again, we got to go back a little bit further. In verse 15, we see the adverb so, or, the, or thus, which indicates that there is a conclusion being drawn, which means we need to go back a little further. We actually have to end up all the way back to verse 14. Paul's thought goes all the way to there, where he says, I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both the wise and the foolish, so I'm eager to preach to you the gospel who are in Rome. Paul says his obligation is to preach the gospel to everyone. And in light of it, he's eager and excited and he's motivated to preach the gospel to the Romans. And then he says, for, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For, because it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek. For, because in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith, to where we end up now. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. This is a continuation of Paul's thoughts. You cannot separate this. Paul is saying, I'm obligated to God and to man to preach the gospel to everyone because, because, and because of it, I look forward to preaching it to you because I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel like so many people who find it offensive. Because the gospel is God's power to save those who believe. Because the gospel is the gift of righteousness that a person needs to be saved. And it's revealed to us and accepted by us through faith. And as the scriptures have told us, the righteous will live by faith. The righteousness of God is a gift given to you by faith. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important for, because the truth is God's wrath against sin, against the sin of men, has been revealed and is being revealed from heaven. Now, why is that important? Because Paul is making us understand, he is helping us to see your greatest problem, the greatest problem that all of mankind faces, is not loneliness. 
The greatest problem of all mankind is not disease, despite what the CDC is telling you right now. The greatest problem is not poverty. The greatest problem is not low self-esteem. It is not oppression. It's not even racism. The greatest problem facing mankind is in hunger. The greatest problem that mankind faces right now is the awful and terrible wrath of a holy and just God that is being revealed right now from heaven against all the sins of men. And as Paul will explain by the time we get to chapter 3, that this is a universal problem, not for just some men or a group of people, but all people, all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. And what you and I need to come to terms with is this truth right here, is the beginning point of the gospel. The wrath of God. The wrath of God is the beginning point of the gospel because it is the bad news that makes the good news relevant. It is the, the wrath of God is the problem that the good news solves. This is the diagnosis that causes us to see the truth that we need the cure, which is Christ. The wrath of God is foundational to our understanding of the gospel. The wrath of God is foundational to our faith in Christ. Because the truth is, even the idea, even if the idea of, the, of God's wrath offends you, the truth is no one comes to Christ and no one endures in their faith unless they understand this. No one gets saved until they know what they're being saved from. Otherwise, you're just joining a club. People, hear me. This is, this is the, the dividing line here because people will not follow Christ into persecution simply because Jesus doesn't let them feel alone anymore. That's not enough. People will not walk into the darkness of rejection by the world and by their family members because Jesus gives them a sense of purpose. That's not enough. People will not sing hymns of joy while they're being beheaded and set on fire simply because they felt accepted and loved by a church community. As loving and great as that is, that is not enough. People will only suffer the world, that the, the, the worst that the world has to offer and endure to the very end when they understand that God is holy, righteous, and just, and they are sinners and rebels against God, deserving the awful and terrible wrath and justice that God has to offer. Right? That that's the bad news, but the good news is that in spite of that, in spite of their vile nature, in spite of their rebellion, God in His grace offers to them the gift of His righteousness that is received, not by earning it, but by faith in Christ and what He has done for you on the cross. It is the truth that Jesus Christ is the only hope for us and the world to be saved from the wrath of God that gives Christians the ability and the strength to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Him as Christ has commanded us to. The wrath of God is the undeniable truth that makes the gospel good news. Whether it offends you or not whether you like it or not, whether you want to accept it or not, it is the truth. The wrath of God is, the, is an inescapable truth about God himself and about his gospel. Well, people might say, well, there's so much more to the Bible than that. I get that. But the, 
entirety of Scripture bears witness to this. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 read, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, on the account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 through 6 read this way. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then he says, says these words, listen to these words. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And if that's not clear enough, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And Paul indicts everyone and says, among whom we all, we all once walked and lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children, not of God, by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's a universal problem. What about the, what about the Apostle John? What does he say? Well, in John 3, which is the same exact chapter in which we find, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes, right? In that same chapter, he says this, for whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's the bad news. That those who do not believe, the wrath of God is hanging over their head. Or... How about Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5? We'll get to that a little bit later, but I'll just give you a preview. Or do you not, or do, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Because God is patient with us, not knowing that his kindness is meant to what? Lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. The wrath of God for yourself. And on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What about the Old Testament? Let's go to Nahum. Nothing like an obscure book of the, the Old Testament people forget about. Startling, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, The Lord is jealous and an avenging God. Whew. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. What were we before Christ? God's enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord is, will, not by, will by no means clear the guilty. That means sin is not going to go unpunished. His way is in the whirlpool and storm and, his and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the seas and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. And the world and, the world and all who dwell in it 
Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. Or Jesus Himself says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right, but then there's also the, the coming wrath that we hear about, right? Revelation chapter 19, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on him is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Who is that? His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is Jesus. This is Jesus, not meek and mild with little sheep hanging around his neck. This is Jesus, the conquering King. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread, Christ will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his right thigh, he has a name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's still not over. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and on him was seated, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, jet, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone, hear this, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Your problem, the greatest problem that you will ever face, the greatest problem of humanity is not a lack of purpose. It is not your problem is not depression. Your greatest problem is not poverty or rising food prices. Your greatest problem is not loneliness or sickness. Your greatest problem is not the fact that your children think that you're an idiot. It happens, right? Your greatest problem is not your boss or who the president is. Your greatest problem is the fact that you will one day, like every other human being before you and after you, you will stand before God and in His holiness He will judge you. And without the gift of righteousness, God will pour out His wrath on you and you will spend eternity in hell suffering forever, which is rightfully the payment that we deserve for our unrighteousness. In fact, that's what all humanity deserves. All humanity deserves. When I talk to people about being a Christian, they say, you think you're better than me. I say, no, I don't. I might even be worse than you. The only difference between me and you is I have faith in Christ. All of us rightly deserve the condemnation that God has poured out on humanity. But the gospel, the good news tells us 
That for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who believe the gospel by faith, they are saved from that. Romans chapter 5, he tells us, Therefore, since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved from bad feelings, loneliness. No! We will be saved from the wrath of God. That's the promise of the good news, to be saved from the wrath of God. And then he says, for if while we were enemies, because that's what we were, enemies, we were reconciled to God by His death, by the death of His Son, much more now we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by His life? Without the wrath of God, there is no gospel. Without the wrath of God, Jesus died for nothing. Without the wrath of God, the, 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 the plan of redemption is pointless. Without the wrath of God, there is nothing to be saved from. That is the truth. But hearing this truth and knowing that truth, I want you to know people will still be offended by that. They will be offended. Right? The idea that a loving God can consign someone to hell is offensive to the world. It offends people. I can't imagine a loving God who would cast somebody into hell. That's because they don't understand His justice. They don't understand His divine nature. That's why the gospel is foolishness to them. And, and, and for some, the idea that of God, the Father, pouring out His wrath on God the Son is really deeply offensive. They, they think that God is, man, He must be so bloodthirsty, He's willing to kill His own Son to satisfy His bloodlust. I've even heard some people refer to that as cosmic Child abuse. Some people claim to be Christians who deny the atonement, saying that's just, that's just cosmic child abuse. But the problem is these people don't understand the character and the nature of God, and they don't see the heinous nature of their sin. That's really the, the, the heart of the matter. They don't see how vile and hateful and ugly their sin is, and, and they don't see, in light of that, the overwhelming love and the grace of God who would... Who, who would then bear the cost of that sin himself. This is why the gospel is falling to them. They cannot see the truth of how vile their sin is. But then there are some people who profess Christ as Savior, who love the Lord and love the Word of God and love the church, but, when, but, when, but they will hold, the, hold their breath when we talk about the wrath of God. In fact, we sang this morning, In Christ Alone, what a beautiful hymn. The words of that song will make me tear up like right now. But did you know that song created a pretty big controversy for one denomination? And it all stems from, from verse 2. It says, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And this denomination, they actually contacted Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty, the authors of this hymn, and they, they wanted, they said, we love the hymn. We want to include it in our hymnal. We think everybody should hear that song. But... Before we include it, we want permission to change the hymn. We want to just change just one line. You see, they, they, again, they loved it, right? Except for one little part, that offensive part, the part about the wrath of God being satisfied. They, that, that offended them. They were offended by the wrath being included. They were offended by the idea of God's wrath, and they were certainly offended by His wrath needing to be satisfied. And so they asked, instead of the wrath of God being satisfied, they asked if... We can just change that to the love of God is magnified, which is true, right? It is.
By the way, they, they said no. There are Christians and whole denominations that are, that, that are horribly bothered by this truth about the wrath of God. These people are uncomfortable and anxious when you talk about God's hatred of sin. These people who, who will invite other people to church and then they're going to get mad at the pastor when the, the pastor starts talking about God's wrath and justice against sin, thinking to themselves, why does he have to talk about that today? Right? I mean, I brought my friend to church and now they're, going to, they're getting their feelings hurt and now they're going to be offended and they're never going to come back to church and they're never going to get saved. Well, this reveals two things about these Christians. Number one is they don't understand that the gospel, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, not your friendship. Not your loving touch, not your compassionate nature, not the pastor, not the church, not your good intentions to spare their feelings. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's number one. Number two, the second thing that it reveals is they just might be ashamed of the gospel. That's what it reveals. If you're embarrassed to talk about the wrath of God, if you get uncomfortable when the preacher mentions the wrath of God, if you think that unbelievers needed to hear God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life rather than the wrath of God that makes the love necessary, that this wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, you just might be ashamed of the gospel. And if this stings, I'm sorry. It's certainly not my aim ever to hurt anybody's feelings. My aim, because I love you, is to tell you the truth. In fact, maybe I should have started with, you know, I love you, right? But, but, but here is the truth. If the wrath of God offends you or bothers you or makes you uncomfortable, if it's preached, you might just be ashamed of the gospel. Now, you, before you say, well, how, how can this be relevant? All right. That's not what Paul is saying here. Well, let's look at Paul's argument. I'm in debt to all of mankind and must preach the gospel because of that. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Romans because I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God to save. Because in the gospel, the gift of righteousness is revealed and offered to you by faith. Why? Because, for as offensive as it may be, I'm not ashamed to tell you that the reason why the gospel is necessary is because the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, which means all of you are in trouble. This is the flow of his argument. Paul's mentioning the wrath of God because he knows that some people will be ashamed of this truth. And if you find yourself hoping that people will someday believe in the gospel without having to ever hear about sin and hell and the wrath of God, you just might be ashamed of the gospel. You see, we, in America, we think that being ashamed of the gospel means just denying that we're a Christian, right? We think being ashamed of the gospel is, is being embarrassed that someone might call us a Jesus freak, right? People think that we, you know, that that we, we, we think that maybe people making fun of us for going to church or listening to contemporary Christian music or worshiping as we drive down the road. Right? We think that being ashamed of the gospel means hiding the fact that we're Christians. We live in America, brothers and sisters. There's no cost to being a Christian. Right? It didn't cost you anything 
maybe a little bit of embarrassment. Somebody calls you a Jesus freak. But that's what most people's, Americans think when, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And so because of that, people will then, you know, put the, what would Jesus do sticker on their car, right? And people will put on y'all need Jesus t-shirt when they go to the mall. And they will argue with the cashier at Target who says, happy holidays. And you say, no, 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 no. It's Merry Christmas because Jesus is the reason for the season. They might even leave, you know, tracks on the table of red lobster for the waitress that say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Thinking that by doing those things, they're demonstrating that they're not ashamed of the gospel. None of those things demonstrate that, by the way. Not in America, anyway. You know what really demonstrates that you're not ashamed of the gospel? It is by proclaiming the gospel. The whole gospel, both the bad news and the good news. It is by telling people the hard truth. That they're not good people who just need a little tune-up to be made a little bit better. They're dead people who need to be born again. By telling them that they're not children of God, but rather children of wrath, and the only way they can become children of God is by faith in the gospel. It is telling them the truth that the greatest problem they face is not temporary problems that we face in this short life because they're all temporary because we're all going to die anyway. But the fact that they, because of their sin, are under God's judgment and wrath unless they turn to Christ by faith. That is how you demonstrate that you're not ashamed of the gospel. Now, again, hear me. I'm not saying you need to be aggressive. I am not saying that you need to be forceful. I'm not saying that you need to be a jerk. I'm not saying you need to go to your grandma and say, Grandma, you know what your problem is? You are a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner, and the wrath of God's about to be poured out on you because you're going to die in like two weeks. So believe the gospel, right? I'm not saying that's how you handle that. That's not how we deal with people. What I'm saying is you need to know how, what the gospel is. You need to accept the gospel, even the offensive part. You need to believe the gospel and not be ashamed of the gospel, even the part about the wrath of God. And you need to lovingly and graciously share the gospel with those people that you love and meet in the right context. Which means you need to let the light of Christ shine through you and love them. Even if they never ever, 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 ever accept the gospel. You need to love them. You need to love them and be good to them so that you can speak truth in their life, right? And when you do talk about the gospel, when you talk about the gospel, you need to be able to explain it to them. You need to be able to walk them through it. And not the gospel that you just, that makes you comfortable, but the real gospel. You need to gently and lovingly share with them the scriptures. You need to use the word of God to help them to see the truth about who God is. And then in light of that, who they really are and then their need for a savior. And you need to be patient. You need to be loving. You need to be persistent. As we say, what do we say all the time around here? What is your job as a Christian? Sow the seed, love the people, pray that God changes their heart, and then never give up on them. That's what our job is as Christians. And what you need, and you need to be okay with them rejecting the message of the gospel. You need to be okay with them just coming to church and hearing the message and saying, you know what, I'm not coming back there. I'm not going to deal with some God who has wrath. You need to be okay with that and not take it personal. Because the gospel, as the, as the Bible says, is foolishness to those who don't believe. 
That's just the way things are. You just need to trust the gospel, not your ability to speak, not your ability to recall a thousand verses, not your persuasive power. The gospel is the power of God to save. So lovingly and unashamedly proclaim it. The good news and the bad news, the, the wrath of God and the love of God, the grace of God and the justice of God. You need to tell them the meaning of the cross. By the way, the, the cross is the intersection of God's wrath and God's love. Do you understand that? That's why the cross is so symbolic to us as Christians. As D.A. Carson explains, he says, both God's love and God's wrath are ratcheted up in the move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from the Old Testament to the New. These themes barrel along through redemptive history, unresolved until they come to a resounding climax in the cross. The beauty of the cross is the truth that God's wrath and His love are on full display. Christ's horrific suffering reveals the holy, just nature of God and His hatred for sin, but it also reveals the depths by which He would go to save us, His love and His grace and His mercy for creatures that He created. He does all of that so that we could be reconciled to Him. God's wrath is just as important as His love. Because when we finally, when they finally intersect, when, we, when they finally see that, we're able to see how glorious God really is. As Paul says later on, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now I'd hope to, like I said before, get a little further into the text today, but I, again, finalizing my notes even this morning, I was still cutting things out. And so this is the place I want to leave you. I want to leave you at the foot of the cross, beholding the glory of God that's revealed in both His wrath and His grace and reminding you that the gospel begins with who God is, that God is holy, righteous, and just, and He's the creator of all things, and He created you specially, that we as human beings are the crowning achievement of His, his creative work, and we were created to reflect His divine nature. We were created for relationship with Him. But that relationship has been destroyed by our sin. Our sin not only separates us from God, but our sin makes us objects of His wrath. God's wrath for those who are in their sin abides on them. And all who are in their sin will one day face judgment. And the worst part about all of that is we can't fix it. We can't fix it. You can't make God love you. By your own actions. You cannot undo the stain of your sin by your best efforts. This is the deception of the world around us. I'm a good person. No, you're not. You might be good compared to Hitler, but you're not good compared to Christ. Right? We are all dead in our sins and trespasses with no way to save ourselves. That's the bad news. The wrath of God abides on us. With, we have no hope on our own. That's the bad news. But the good news, the good news is God didn't leave us without a way. That God in the flesh, Jesus Christ came into the world to do all the things for us that we can't do. He earned a righteous standing that we need to have before God in His perfect sinless life. And then on His death on the cross, He took upon Himself the full weight of our sin and bore in His body the full wrath of God that's against us. That Jesus drank down the whole cup of God's wrath. 
Every last drop and turned it over. It is finished, he declared. And when we put our faith in him, in that gospel, the righteousness of Christ is given to us as a gift, a free gift. And our sins are wiped away forever and ever and ever, never to have to walk and be ashamed anymore. And that includes past, present, and future sins. We were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we are kept saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he rose three days after he died, proving that that is the absolute truth. That is the gospel, brothers and sisters. That is the good news. That is the good news that should lift you up and, and help you to walk out of here, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that you have been set free from the penalty and the power of sin, that God is not only for you, but he is now permanently with you wherever you go, and the promise is he will never leave you or forsake you, and that he also promised that nothing, nothing, under heaven and earth can snatch you out of his hands that you are safe and that he will safely see you home and that you have a future and a hope that will not be shaken. Brothers and sisters, that is the glorious gospel that we proclaim. Let us never be ashamed of any detail of the you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.